I checked back the last time we did this, and it, in fact, took 10 weeks. So I don't have any particular plan how many weeks it's going to take, but doing it in 10 weeks is not out of the question because that's what happened last time. Up on the screen behind me is the structure of what's called the Luke Travel Narrative. I got that from Kenneth Bailey, Poet and Peasant. It's quite a good book. As we go through this, I'm going to be working off of that outline, and a number of the insights that I will talk about are his. I will try and remember to give him credit at the appropriate time, but I'm just letting you know up front that the derivation of the structure and some of the insights about that structure are from Bailey. I was talking before the class, and most of you who have been here for a while understand chiasms, but I understand you folks don't necessarily. It's fairly new. One of the things is there are a number of ways to convey information. I got this explanation from Rabbi Foreman. You can convey information by straight words. This happened, then that happened, and just the words are conveying information. You can also convey information by structure. So the classic example is the Ten Commandments, where you've got two tablets, A and B, and you've got five on each tablet. And one of the ways to look at that is tablet A is relationship to authority figures, tablet B is relationship to human, horizontal and vertical relations. Typical way to look at it. You can also look at it as one to six, two to seven, three to eight, four to nine, five to ten. So there's a number of ways you can look at the relationships among the Ten Commandments, and each way that you look at those relationships gives you some different information. So as I said, the left tablet, which is typically on the left if you're doing it in English, probably on the right if you're doing it in Hebrew, is relations to authority figures. So you have God and parents over there. And then on the right tablet, you have relationships among people. So you have don't steal, don't covet, and that kind of stuff. You also have a list of 10, and there's three lists of 10 in Scripture. They're basically all the same thing. So you have the 10 statements of creation in Genesis 1. You have 10 plagues of destruction in Exodus. And then you have 10 statements of recreation in the Ten Commandments at Sinai. So there's all sorts of ways to look at the Ten Commandments structurally. The actual words are very few and parsimonious. So you can get extra information by how you look at it. Another way of doing that is what's called a chiasm which is what we have up here in Luke, starting in chapter 951 and going all the way to 1948. And that series of chapters in Luke is heavily structured and forms a chiasm. Chiasm is what I would like to call a set of nested parentheses. So you have parentheses out here, and then inside you've got another set of parentheses, and inside you've got another set of parentheses, and so forth. And in typical fashion, the point of the whole chiasm is the middle. So it points to what's happening in the middle. 
and that's the intensification of what's going on in the structure. And we find chiasms all over the Bible, both Old and New Testament. And when I was new in the Bible, I would be reading along and I'd say, wait a minute, I just read this. Does anybody here besides me read and zone out for about two pages and then all of a sudden realize at the end of the second page that you don't know what you've read, but your eyes have read it all? And so when I was hitting chiasm, it was like, wait a minute, did I just zone out for two chapters here? Well, it may have been that true, but, <laughs> but the structure of the text is designed to lead you to the center. So in 25 words or less, those are chiasms and structure in Scripture. And once you know they're there, you see them everywhere. As I say, it's an additional source of information beyond just the words. So anyway, the travel narrative, which starts in Luke 9, 51, is the story of Yeshua on his way to Jerusalem for the final time. So all of this happens as he is going to Jerusalem, and the end of it, of course, will be the crucifixion. And what he's doing is he is talking about a number of things with respect to the kingdom of God. So you'll notice, for example, the typical chiastic structure, beginning and the end, you have Jerusalem eschatological events. Then inside, you have follow me in Luke 9, 57, and then again in 18. Then you have the subject of eternal life, and that's in Luke 10, and again in Luke 18. And what you find is in both cases, somebody asks virtually the same question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Yeshua gives a slightly different answer each time. The way I am going to attack this, unless I get sidetracked, is I intend to tackle it chiastically, in other words, by subject. So we'll talk about Jerusalem eschatological events and probably follow me tonight. And then next time, we'll talk about what shall I do to inherit eternal life. So I'm not going to go through it in the order it's written in Scripture. I'm going to go through it in chiastic order. So for example, when we hit prayer, we'll have two or three sessions on Yeshua on prayer. The one on prayer in chapter 11 is the friend at midnight you know, where somebody bangs on the door and says, I got an unexpected guest that's come into town. I need some bread. So he's talking about prayer there in the context of that parable. And then when we get down to chapter 18, you have the parable of the unjust judge. And in both cases, you have somebody who needs something. And in one case, it's a friend or a guy that needs a loaf of bread. And in the other case, it's a widow who needs justice. But both of those are talking about prayer. And of course, you can pop that up because he is the Messiah and he's talking about prayer. So what he's doing is he's explaining to you how prayer works between you and the Father. So that's how we're going to attack this, as opposed to simply reading it in the order that it was written, which gives you a different perspective on it. Luke wrote it that way on purpose. 
He also, I'm sure, set it up as a chiasm on purpose. It's intended, of course, to be read straight through as a narrative, which I'm sure everybody in the room has done. So rather than going through it that way, which is the way most people are used to going through it, we'll go through it by subject. So let's start with Luke 9, starting in verse 51. So when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So there's your launch. And everything after this is in the context of this trip up to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Hold that thought in your head, and the other end of it, Luke 19, starting in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem. So he's not in Jerusalem yet. Because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. All right, now, a couple of things. Notice that in both the Samaritan village and the subjects of the ruler, the subjects do not want anything to do with him. So there's your first correspondence. So you can look at the parable of the talents in light of what's going on with the Samaritan village, there's two things going on. One is he is going to come back having received his kingdom. And when he left, the people who he was ruling over didn't want him. That sound like anybody we know? So Yeshua when he was here as the Son of God, was rejected by Israel. And in fact, they killed him. So they said, we do not want this man to rule over us. So he's also here being prophetic. The other thing he then did is he gave to his servants resources. And the message to his servants was, take these resources that I have given you and parenthesis, work to increase the kingdom. In the parable, it's do business, but the resources that he leaves his servants are intended to increase his holdings. That's what doing business means. Verse 15 again. I'm in Luke 19.50. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom we had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. 
Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. Then another man came and said, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit, and you reap what you do not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And he said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that To everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, remember we started off with enemies. This, by the way, is another chiasm. A chiasm inside of a chiasm. Remember, we started with the guys that says, we don't want you back. Now we're going to deal with the guys that didn't want him back. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, Bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, what was the reaction of the disciples to the Samaritan village that would not accept him? Do you want us to bring down fire on these people? And he said, not yet. That's the basic message, not yet. Because what's going to happen at some point in the future is if they do not get with the program, they will be thrown into the lake of fire. Now, back to our MENA bankers. One of the things to understand culturally, and it's the same in every culture, a manager of resources is entitled to take his living from the resources he manages. So use an example. Ken's son is an investment broker and a wealth manager. And I've given him my little bit of wealth and I've said, manage it. And he's, by the way, doing a nice job. But he is also taking a commission. And his commission is based on a percentage of what I have entrusted him with. That's entirely fair, entirely honorable, entirely above board, entirely to be expected. What's happening with these managers is the guy that has got 10 minas is getting a whole lot more commission than the guy who just had one mina. So this guy's driving around in a BMW, whereas the guy with one mina may be driving around in a Chevy because his commission is not as big. Everybody understand the concept here? So what the ruler does is he says, all right, this guy is not profitable. He's not getting me any return on my investment, not even so much as interest. In other words, he's timid. So what he says is, take it from him and give it to the guy who is the most successful. And people say, what? I mean, the guy's already driving around in a BMW. You're going to give him more? And the answer is, yeah because he's a better manager of my resources. Of course I'm going to give him more. 
I'm going to bet on the winning horse. That's what's being said here. The other thing that's going on here, if we look at the Lord, look at this as being God, there are a couple of perspectives here. Remember those of you here on Shabbat, I was talking about people who had missed the love of God. A Pharisee believes in God. The Pharisee believes God is sovereign. The Pharisee believes God can do what God says he will do, etc. But a Pharisee's relation to God is based on fear. What he is trying to do is avoid punishment. So what he's doing is he's following rules so as not to get punished. And in Christianity, the equivalent to a Pharisee is a Calvinist. And he is following rules so as not to be punished. And when a Calvinist talks about the grace of God, which is very real, I'm not knocking any of that, what he's talking about is grace in relation to punishment. So what he's saying is God's grace has saved me from being punished. The whole emphasis here on all of this is he is a hard man who reaps where he does not sow. That's the view of the Pharisee. That's the view of the Calvinist. And the fact that God bestows grace on our friend the Calvinist, and and don't get me wrong, Calvinists are some of the sharpest people in the world. They are very smart people. They know the scriptures. They care a great deal. These are not schlubs. They're good people. I'm not knocking them. I just don't agree with their theology. And what they have missed is that God truly loves them. And they don't have a love relationship with God so much as they have an obedience relationship with God. And that's what's going on with this third manager. And God is a hard and harsh master when you have gotten to the point where his attribute of justice kicks in. And as I've said before, God's attribute of justice and God's attribute of mercy are His mercy is ever so slightly stronger than his justice. Praise God. So what our wicked servant has said is, I am terrified. I do not want to take a chance of losing anything that you have given me because I believe you're going to take it out of my hide if I do. So I'm not going to risk it. I am simply going to take it, and I'm going to wrap it in a handkerchief, and I'm going to bury it in the backyard, and when you show up again, I'll go out and dig it back up. I'm going to wrap that handkerchief and give it to you, and we'll be done. And just as God, so to the master here, rebukes him for being a wicked and unprofitable servant. That goes back to the attitude that this guy has. This guy does not understand the love of God, He only understands the fear of God. And I don't know about you, but any money manager worth his salt is going to take risks with the money because that's the only way you make more money. It goes with the territory. And to think that the master doesn't understand that is naive. It's not understanding the master as well. And we'll get into that more when we get to the crooked steward. But the idea here is this guy only sees the downside 
If I lose any of that, it's going to come out of my hide. He's not going to understand. He's going to punish me if I've lost anything. So what I'm going to do is just give it back to him. And in fact, that results in more punishment than it would have been had he invested it poorly. Understand that investing poorly and fraud are two different things. So fraud and embezzlement will lose money to the client, but so will downturns in the market, you know, crop failure, any number of things that you have no control over may lose you money. That kind of a loss, you may get another money manager if he keeps making bad bets, but he's not crooked. Whereas if somebody's skimming off the top and you're losing money that way, that's fraud. And that's an entirely different kettle of wax. Comment was, not only did he misunderstand the character of the master, but he also didn't have a productive relationship with the other managers. And again, there's going to be parables in this, like, for example, the parable of the two lost sons, where you're going to have not only the prodigal son, but you also have bad dynamics within the family between the two brothers. So we don't know what the dynamics are within the management structure of this ruler, but we know for sure that this wicked servant is afraid, not willing to take risks, not willing to use the talents that he's been given to the benefit of his master, and parenthesis also does not talk to the more skilled managers who are the other two. And the reason I'm putting all sorts of hedges around that is in business, especially in organizations, there is often an unhealthy competition. If I help you, that means that you'll get ahead and you may take my position someday. So I'm not only not going to help you, I may try and steer you wrong so you make a mistake. So we don't have any idea what the dynamics are within this organization, but we do know that the poor manager didn't consult with the good ones. And it may be because it wouldn't have done any good, or it may be because he just didn't have good relationships. We just don't know that. And so the last thing about this, of course, this is obviously a parable about Yeshua and the fact that he is at some point going to come back and there's going to be three classes of people when he comes back. There's going to be his enemies. And that's where the bowls of wrath come in. Read Revelation, we got bowls of wrath. That's what we're doing there. The second one is people who believe in him and are part of his organization who have not done anything with the talents they've been left with or not done anything useful with the talents they've been left with. So these are believers, if you will, who are not productive in the kingdom. And productive in the kingdom is a function of the gifts you have been given. We're all given different gifts. So if you get, I'm really feeling down because I'm not a Paul. I'm not out there fighting with the Pharisees and arguing with the Jews in the synagogue and all that kind of stuff. Well, you may not be gifted as a Paul. 
question is, what are you doing with the gifts that you have? And each of us has them, and most everybody here is at a stage in life when you should sort of have an idea what they are, and you should be using them. And so he's going to be chapped with people who are not using the gifts he left for them to the benefit of his kingdom. A live dog is better than a dead lion. I was listening to some radio preacher. He said, I'm a better preacher than Paul because Paul's dead. I'm still alive and I'm still preaching. So right now I am a better preacher than Paul because Paul isn't preaching anymore. The proverb is a live dog is better than a dead lion. It actually may be in Ecclesiastes. One of the Solomon books, yes. The third group of people are people who have taken the resources he has entrusted them with and have invested those resources into his kingdom. And notice that not everybody has the same resources. And the resources that he gives you are a function of his estimation of how successful you're going to be using them. Matthew 25 and Mark 13. The story is the same in all three, but there are variations in it. And I think we've talked about that in the past. What that says is that the three of them didn't sit down and cook it up. Each of them is telling the story as he remembers it. And they have slightly different memories of what happened. Anyway, the point I wanted to make is there's going to be a number of parables throughout the synoptic gospels talking about servants waiting for the master who is gone talking about an owner or a master or a ruler who has gone away leaving stuff entrusted to money managers servants vine dressers variations on the same theme and the theme is always a that he's coming back and B, that he expects those who he has left with his goods to be investing them or caring for them or feeding servants or variations on the same thing, but he expects you to be busy and productive while he's gone. And it is not acceptable just to sit on your blessed assurance and wait until he gets back. That's not what he wants to have happen. And one of the big reasons why he wants you to be productive while he's gone is the other thing that happens in this eschatological event business is at the end of the day, we get fire down from heaven. The Samaritan village, he says, not yet, but at the end of the parable in Luke 19, he says, all right, now take all those people who are my enemies and take them out and slaughter them. So... The idea of those of us who have resources in this kingdom is we want to minimize the number of people who are taken out and slaughtered. So the next one we have is follow me, and that's fairly brief. And we're now back in Luke 9, 57. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Yeshua said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Yeshua said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. Yeshua said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So all of these people are wanting to follow, and what he's doing here is he is discouraging them. He's saying, you don't understand the cost of what it is that you want to do. And furthermore, if you've got stuff to do before you're ready to come to me, then you're not ready to come to me. In fact, one of my favorite was, let the dead bury the dead. You can look at that in light of Genesis 3, which is to say, without him, we are all dead. The only way to eternal life is through him. So the idea of letting the dead bury the dead is, you come with me to eternal life. Those who are going to die, let them take care of their own. There's one way to read that. And again, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, once you decide to go, you need to go. And not look back at what you have left. Then we have the sending out of the 72. And many of you have heard this before. There's two versions of the Torah. Version number one is the Masoretic text, which most of your Bibles are translated from. Version number two is the Septuagint, which is the Greek version. The Masoretic text dates from about the 6th century. The Septuagint dates from about the 2nd or 3rd century before Christ. So it's an older text. Most of the quotations in the Gospels come from the Septuagint version. So you'll find things where people say it is written, and you look in your Torah and you can't find it. That's because it's from the Septuagint. The reason I'm bringing that up is 72. In the Masoretic text, the number of nations that are separated after the flood are 70. In the Septuagint, there are 72. In Revelation, there are 144,000 who go out into the world before the day of the Lord. And it is my belief that 144,000 is a thousand pairs to each of the nations that was separated after the flood. And what he's doing here in Luke is he's setting up the model for that. He's sending them out two by two in pairs. And he's sending out 72 of them. So when it comes time to harvest the world, he will send them out in pairs again and he will send a thousand pairs to each of the nations that are separated. And I believe, this is Johnnyology, do with this as you like, I believe that those guys' job will be to do what Moses did before the Exodus, which is to get everybody rounded up and get them to Goshen and get them out of the way. Because what God does in the Exodus is he doesn't take Israel out of the world. Israel stays in Egypt. But what he does is he moves them up to Goshen and segregates them and then deals with Egypt while they are still there. Which is 
why I don't happen to be a rapture guy. If you happen to be a rapture guy, God bless you, we can still do lunch, it's okay. Either you can explain it to me on the way up, or you can come out into my tent in the wilderness and I'll explain it to you. Regardless of who gets sucked up into the overhead when, the point I'm making is what Yeshua is doing with his 72 that he is sending out is he is modeling what is going to happen on a larger scale with 144,000. The whole point here is follow me and then going into the cities and warning people of what's going to happen. Because at the end in verse 13, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent him. So the purpose of the 72 is to go out and save as many people as possible out of the bowls of wrath. And then the corresponding chapter at the end of the chiasm is Luke 18 and 35. And as he drew near Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what was meant. And they told him, Yeshua of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Yeshua, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Yeshua stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Yeshua said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him. So follow me. Glorifying God and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And then the same thing is going to happen with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is going to hop up into a tree and... Yeshua is going to say to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus drops out of the tree, follows Yeshua back, and feeds him. Down in verse 9, Yeshua said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Same concept as sending out the 72. And you notice that we started off with a Samaritan city and you had the 72 going out, not necessarily the Samaritan cities, but you started off with the Gentile city, Samaritans, and you sent the 72 out. You're here, you're in Jericho, which is a Hebrew city, and Yeshua is saying, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So he's sending the 72 out to seek and save the lost, and he himself is seeking and saving the lost. Okay, so those are the first two elements in our chiasm, eschatological events in Jerusalem, and then follow me and follow me. What we'll do next time is what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that may take two weeks because what we'll have is the Good Samaritan, and that will take a while to do. And then 
1818 is a rich ruler, which may not take that long. The comment was that in the case of the blind man who follows Yeshua, when he is told that Yeshua is coming by, he knows who this is, which means somebody's told him. And the fact that somebody has told him that Yeshua is coming is the planting of a seed. And that seed then ripens when he actually comes by and he calls out and says, Son of David. So if somebody hadn't told this guy what was going on, he wouldn't have known to cry out at the appropriate time. Good, I agree. (laughs) Shama